Good evening, everybody. Thank you very much for coming, um, especially uh, for the students who are here who are right in the middle or on the cusp of taking their exams. This is a very busy time around the school. Um, and we are really delighted uh, as the Crisis States Research Center. Um, I'm James Putzel, the director of the Crisis States Research Center, to welcome you and to welcome our guests, um, Ashraf Ghani and Claire Lockhart, uh, who are here on the occasion of the launching of their book, Fixing Failed States, a framework for rebuilding a fractured world. This obviously is right at the heart of our own research agenda here in the school, and I've had occasion over the last few years to encounter um, both Ashraf and, and Claire, who I find are leading lights in this field. Leading lights not only in analyzing the problem of fragile states, but also in presenting a systematic, frank uh, analysis in the policy community. It was only just some months ago that I found myself together with them both in, uh, in, in Addis, in Ethiopia, at a meeting organized by the World Bank's Independent Evaluation Group, uh, which was discussing the World Bank's work on uh, so-called uh, fragile states. And on that occasion, uh, Ashraf uh, gave a keynote speech and was able with his provocative analysis of what the international community is doing in this realm, uh, open up the conference to what I think was a really very important critical discussion of the international community's role in this sphere. Ashraf Ghani has a master's uh, and a PhD in anthropology from Columbia University. And I, kind, I wonder sometimes how much better the world would be if all those who eventually become ministers of finance actually were trained in anthropology. Um, so he's, I don't know if I could say unique in that respect, but certainly um, uh, I, I think he, he, he took a, a trajectory in his career that's rather unusual and rather different. His academic research has been largely on questions of state building and social transformations. He has uh, a long record of study, uh, even to the point where um, in 1985 he undertook a year's fieldwork researching Pakistani madrasas as a Fulbright, Fulbright scholar. Again, these are not the normal uh, items on the CV of a finance minister. Um, he has worked um, uh, at the World Bank, where he was lead anthropologist, uh, working on projects in East Asia and in South Asia uh, until the mid-1990s. He spent five years in China, India, and Russia, managing large-scale development and institutional transformation projects. Um, and he's worked intensively with the media during the first Gulf War um, and, and commented on events in the media uh, related to that war. In 2001, he returned to Afghanistan after 24 years. Uh, in November, by, by, by the next November in 2002, he was special advisor to the United Nations and assisted Mr. Lakhdar Brahimi, the special representative of the Secretary General, uh, in his work to prepare the Bonn Agreement, the landmark agreement that paved the way to a post-Taliban uh, Afghanistan. In 2002, he also joined the Afghan government as chief advisor, and it was 
After that moment, uh, he, he went on to become uh, the finance minister from 2002 to 2004. I think playing a, an, an absolutely pivotal role in that very early informative period um, of, the, of the Karzai government and was able to encounter, I think, that all the challenges, problems, many of which are still unresolved, that face uh, Afghanis in efforts to reconstitute a state, especially reconstituting a state in conditions where there's ongoing warfare. Ashraf is joined in the enterprise of writing this important book uh, by Claire Lockhart, who uh, he's worked closely together with uh, over these last few years. Uh, Claire is a, um, uh, an intellectual giant in her own right, I would argue, having, having witnessed, um, read, and listened to her at numerous conferences um, by now. The book is clearly a, a, a joint effort. Claire, between 2001 and 2005, worked as UN advisor to the Bonn Agreement, in Afghanistan and advised the government of Afghanistan, where she led a number of national initiatives. In 2006-2007, she was an advisor to NATO and the, um, and, and the security forces operating in the country, um, helping to reconstruct security in, in Afghanistan. Previously, she worked for um, the World Bank, um, on institutional and organizational analysis and drew on her training as an historian uh, in history, economics, and law uh, in looking at problems of legal reform. Uh, Claire is um, uh, a specialist in constitutional and human rights law and served as a barrister um, in the past. Uh, right now, both, both, both Claire and um, Ashraf are working with the institute or founded an institute for state effectiveness. Again, I think taking a bold, outlining a bold mission to confront the international community um, with a serious analysis of what works and what doesn't work um, in trying to put states that have experienced extreme violence and warfare back together again. Ashraf's known for not being a great fan of the way that foreign aid is distributed, and he is an advocate for promoting foreign investment in places that are trying to reconstruct. The book is on sale out front, and you'll notice very quickly, if you were to browse the cover, I'm not going to read out the reviews, but there's the, the, the book comes highly recommended on its back cover by the likes of Francis Fukuyama, Hernando de Soto, Robert Hormatz, Gail Smith, and Paul Collier, who was speaking here earlier in the academic year, uh, an expert on, uh, on problems of crisis and war and reconstruction. Uh, so we're absolutely delighted to have um, both authors here. First, Ashraf will address us, followed by Claire, and we'll keep uh, a substantial period of time for um, questions and answers at the end. So let's welcome Ashraf Ghani and Claire Lockhart. Thank you, James. Thank you for that very generous introduction. It's a 
pleasure and honor to be with you, and particularly, I'm delighted that the students are here. I love undergraduate teaching uh, and admire graduate students because you're the ones who ask the fundamental questions. Without your questions, they cannot be changed, and we are living in a world where change is a must. There are those rare moments in history where either a people or the world at large needs a rupture with the past, where continuity becomes a burden rather than an asset, where imagination becomes more important than resources, where collective power is more significant than redistributive power. Such moments occur rarely. When they are utilized, we get positive transformation. When they are missed, we get a vicious circle. Napoleon 2006, it's such a moment. Today, again, it seems to be having such a moment. Southern Sudan, or Sudan after the peace agreement, the comprehensive peace agreement. Lebanon, after the conflict, the Israeli invasion of 2006. And Kosovo, again, we've had the honor and pleasure to interact uh, in these places. And Afghanistan, between 2001 and 2005, again had such a moment. Some of these, as you've seen from these cases, get to be utilized. Some don't. Spain, in 1975, used its open moment to overcome 100 years of history and became democratic and European and prosperous. Ireland, in the 1980s, utilized its, created an open moment and transformed itself. The American South, in 1960s, had such a transformation. Singapore in 1960s. But for each of these, of course, there are those who missed the boat. And as Paul Collier might have told you, 50% of the peace agreements that are signed within five years result in a renewal of a civil war. These are places that go back, that allow a vicious circle to come. So we need to ask ourselves about these moments as to what is it that we do right, what is it that we miss? Why so many miseries? Because the one-year cost of global conflicts of today is $100 billion, more than all the foreign aid combined. We are simultaneously, we would argue, in an open global moment and not just nationally. Why? Because in 1945 to 49, there was an open moment where some very creative people, in retrospect dubbed the wise men, 
though there were some really wise women, but the world being sexist, of course, singles out the men uh, and not the women. Uh, now, one would not use that line. Could at least felt that they were present at creation, which is the title of Dana Atchison's memoirs. They focused on getting half the world right by embarking on a path to make Europe, Japan, and Korea democratic and market-based. And against all odds, they succeeded. Today, we are confronting a situation where we have to get the whole world right. Security can no longer be divided into two halves. Europe and the United States cannot become fortresses. The nature of globalization has produced democratization of violence, quote-unquote, that threats are all either to all of us as are the opportunities. The environment cannot be handled nationally alone. Poverty is not a question that is out there and not here. Because of this, we have to treat this moment as one where we make a rupture with the institutions and ways of thinking of the 20th century and confront the world and challenges of the 21st century. Our capability to rise to this challenge is going to depend and determine our own life chances and the life chances of the generations to come. This is a time both for national, but particularly for global leaders. But there is a double obstacle. We are calling this the double failure. On the one side is failed politics nationally. And on the other side is a failed global aid system. And a failed global imagination. You cannot bring stability to the world by use of force alone. There's simply not enough force in the world to impose order. And people want in, not out, of the process of globalization. They have to be given a fair level playing field to join in not kept out. Civilizations don't clash. You know, the, the thesis of clash of civilizations was invented in Pakistani madrasas. It's ironic that the Harvard professor would make a fortune from it. That is poverty of imagination. You know, I'm delighted to be at LSC because... Uh, Malinowski, the great anthropologist who taught for decades here, taught us to understand other social systems in their own terms and not judge them by our own. And in terms of the world of Islam, today there is a great failure in the West to understand who we are. The diversity 
their immense complexity is reduced to slogans. Without Islam, they would have neither, the West would have neither had Greek science nor Indian mathematics. We, we shared. There was 150 years of a common project of translation, global project of translation, Baghdad. We need to reach out. That's the kind of imagination. But politics has failed because the Islamic politics, again, is a politics of failure internally. And one needs to be able to turn on this. But the greatest failure is in the failure of the contract between those who govern and those who are or rule. People who rob their people do not deserve our respect. And if we want a common agenda, we have to talk truth to each other. Not accommodate the surface illusions that some people have the right to represent others. The second failure is the failure of the aid system. First, let me just cite a couple of uh, figures. The United States allocates $2 billion a year currently to food aid because food is topical. Next year, it's going to be $5 billion. You know what's the cost of administration and shipping? Please have a guess. Huh? Five, did you say? No, no, how much? What percentage? 65%. So when we are talking about generosity, we need to understand whether generosity translates uh, to mechanisms. Sometimes a dollar of foreign assistance is worth 20 cents on the ground because it goes through six to five to six layers of contracting. But the most significant part of the damage from this is actually regarding the rule of law. Why? Because try to go to a country, any country in Africa, any country that is aid-dependent in Asia or, or in the Caribbean. What happens? You get thousands of projects. Each of these projects is managed through a different set of rules. Contracting is done to one set of rules by one. Impacts are assessed to different methodology by one to the other. So villages that are living right next to each other are subject to different rules, different systems. Can you build a common frame of citizenship with that kind of fragmentation of rules? Second, the reporting arrangements. Tanzania, the one that has really been singled out, submits 1,200 reports a year to its donors. 1,200 reports, you know, I mean, who's going to read this? So what happens in Africa? Four billion a year, uh, two billion a year are spent on technical assistance to hire 100,000 expatriates to write these reports. It's, it's a really cushy job, but you know, is that going to produce development? Uh, we are engaged in this because the money is our money. 
your money as citizens. And the mechanism of accountabilities need to be established to make it functional. Aid is required. Poverty is real. Environment is real. Security challenges are real. But the money is not effective. The current way of spending money is counterproductive. They pretend, you know, there used to be an old Soviet joke. They pretend to work, we pretend to pay them. Now, we can say, they pretend to develop, we pretend that they are developing. The pigment has to come down. But this is not a negative book. No, it really is not. Our agenda is very positive. Because the core issue for us is first to realize the scale of the challenge and then say we actually know how to deal with this. The scale of the challenge is that 40 to 60 countries are failing to perform the key functions of the state for their citizens. So 2 billion people are, in, are suffering from this. But is the scale so enormous that then we don't know what to do? No, the answer is the opposite. So what's the first step? I'll take the first step, and my wise colleague will do the three next steps. First, our argument is we need to understand what the state is. The core of the state is that it's not an institution imposed from outside, but it's the mechanism for collective realization of our aspirations. That's the, the modern state. The state of the 16th to 19th century is a different animal. If we want to understand the modern state, at the core of it lies the notion of citizenship. A state, so state failure or state success is not a slogan to be thrown at those we dislike. It has to become a mechanism for measurement and in judgment. And people who need to make the judgment are the citizens. Theoretically, the foundations of this work are in the works of John Stuart Mill and John Dewey. Mill is very well known in this country, so I won't go, go to him. But the core argument that he made was that the state is no essence. It assumes functions as people want it or don't want it. There are some core functions and there are some adults. John Dewey made the critical observation that a public is constituted through discussion. And the minute a public is constituted, it requires to deal with the unintended consequences of their action. And that's when they create a state and then a government. But the public is the necessary part of the, of the government in the state. Without the public, you cannot have a government. And third, he said, the people ask the state to assume the functions that they need to be assumed. This is in his great book that is underread called The Public and Its Problem that appeared in 1929. 
And I think the story of the prosperous part of the world post-1945 is precisely that transformation. That a repressive order is now been reconstituted as a representative order with all its problems, but degree of representation. We propose that the modern state performs ten core functions that have been assumed historically by it. We can go to the genealogy of those during questions, but I'd like to just illustrate with three. First, infrastructure. I want to begin at a very unusual place. The American Society of Civil Engineers has carried an evaluation of the federal government's performance in the infrastructure. The highest grade that they give them is a C minus. Net result, $1.5 trillion are required in the U.S. for operation and maintenance of the infrastructure. And that money is not available. So a discussion now has to start in the public, and that discussion has begun. You know, that's, that's the importance of democratic process. What's the consequence of this? Fault infrastructure. For every five minutes of delay, UPS, the trucking company, loses $22 million. So if you are living in a world of global flows, the role of the state, either in directly managing and providing infrastructure or providing the framework for it, is very important because Spain shows the opposite. Spain did not have money. American infrastructure was created through a great act of imagination under Eisenhower. But in Spain, they didn't have money. But what they did was they created a framework of long-term private-public partnership that allowed for mobilization of, of the revenue, but under state regulation. Now the net result of that is globally Spanish companies are winning contracts to manage the privatization of infrastructure in the United States. The United States in that regard is an emerging market, and Spanish firms are the mature firms. You see, it depends on the perspective of what we see. But in the next 25 years, there's going to be $42 trillion of estimated investment in global infrastructure. This has enormous consequences for carbon footprint from the design side, for mobilization of financial resources and instruments, because this is 10 times more than what exists in the global uh, financial markets combined. But particularly, it has enormous implications for developing countries because this is going to be a new commodities boom. How those are managed is going to become extremely important. Now, the second function that I want to illustrate is public finance. We have done a comparison in the book that you can see between a speech of Gladstone and then 10 years of speeches of Gordon Brown as the Chancellor of Exchequer. And it is extremely interesting because at the time of Gladstone, the key functions of state were security and payment of the public service. And at the time he's speaking, is right after Crimea War, personal taxes were a temporary measure that were adopted and he was promising to abolish them. Yes, you know, uh, trust and promises of government. <laughs> but we need to. By contrast, if you're looking at the strategic audit of the UK government 
of 2005. Then we see what range of functions now the government itself and the citizens expect. Main conclusion of this, the work of government is never done because it has to change. No government is reached the, the completion. It is governance is a work in progress. But public finance is the arena where rights and obligations come together. Marshall, the great theorist of citizenship, argued about the history of evolution of citizenship rights. We need to simultaneously explore the history of citizenship obligations. Because without taxation, without some part of citizenry assuming the obligations of citizenship, there cannot be mechanisms of realization. So the budget, except instead of being viewed as some boring subject, you know, I always bore my colleagues because they're saying, you're an anthropologist, you know, what the hell do you know about budgets? And of course, I know a lot about budgets because I've analyzed them over 100 countries. Because the budget as a reality is a social document. It is not a technical document. It's hard a budget as the, as the political document. Because that's where limits meet, demands. One is balancing in a budget always the demands of the citizenry in, in comparison to the resources. And one confronts the choices, the hard choices that the poor people do on a daily basis as to whether to grow the economy, shrink it, where to prioritize. The great disservice of the aid system to the budget is that it's hijacked from a democratic process of citizen participation. And it is fragmented because the project modality of finance actually undermines the budget. And then we lose sight of why we need to mobilize and why we have responsibility to citizens. You know, companies have balance sheets on the basis of which make investments. Why don't we have balance sheets for government? And when you look at, at public finance, you find something really interesting. We call it the expenditure constraint. A very large number of governments in the world, probably 100, cannot spend money, either their own or the aid systems. Iraq is the best example. This year, it's cutting down its developmental budget by 65%, from 10 billion to 4 billion. As oil prices are booming, it is cutting down its developmental expenditure because it has not evolved the system to spend the money. But the data for this, to do the comparisons, actually does not exist in the public record. We need to be able to treat the budget as a citizen's concern in order to look at this compact. The third uh, function that I want to illustrate with is rule of law. But I don't want to talk about rule of law in abstractions. I want to take three illustrations. First, the first manifestation of rule of law is the definition of use of force. When force is bound by rules and citizens have recourse to a legal system on whether force has been legitimately used, we are talking about rule of law. 
Because otherwise it's violence. People have forgotten that when Max Weber defined the state in terms of one sole function, one sole criterion, it was a claim to legitimate monopoly of force. The claim and the legitimate get to be forgotten. The shift is towards monopoly of force. It's a claim that is subject to contestation and it has to be legitimate. And rule of law regarding status of force is that what defines it. Second is the power of the bureaucracy, the power of the administration itself. Is those who are appointed to perform state functions public servants or are they overlords over us? And this is where, again, rules acquire their, their full force or lack of. When 90% of an expenditure allocated for a school in some countries disappears between its Ministry of Finance and the school, you are not talking about rule of law or accountability. We have to get at the level of process to be able to do it. And the third illustration is all rules subject to change through a legal process. The history of, history of England, of course, is enormously interesting in this regard, as Marshall fully analyzed, because the state was a repressive organ. I mean, if first, if we look at corn law, in terms of the battle between the landed class and the industrial class, the vehicle of change was parliament. Second, if you look at enfranchisement, one of the most restrictive. And of course, there is corruption. Sugarman has argued, for instance, in his brilliant analysis, that until 1870s, you could buy any law you wished in England. The law was what you paid for. And grand corruption was a characteristic. So societies have faced these challenges. But they've evolved mechanisms for orderly transformation through the VA. And the American South is the other manifestation. Segregation was legally enshrined. But the mechanisms of change came through the system. And where that does not occur is also interesting because Soviet Union is an example of that. Where a relatively small opening and in comparative historical terms a defeat in Afghanistan that, that was not backbreaking broke the system. Because the system did not have internal legitimacy. So the contrast between a system that can change through legal mechanism and one that requires mobilization to such an extent that then it becomes a systemic crisis needs to be appreciated. Because of this, we need to rescue all of these domains that look on surface technical and look at them as social political processes. At times, you know, people tell us, you are not dealing with politics. But reaching agreement on a technical sphere of governance is in itself a political process. You have to secure an area of agreement to be able to govern in a certain way. And this is deeply about citizenship empowerment. Because we hear about citizenship empowerment in terms of slogan. What we would like to focus on is the operationalization of that through concrete mechanisms. So 
accountabilities, mutual uh, accountabilities can be established. Now, Claire uh, Lockhart will assume the narrative in terms of where do we look for learning and what are the distinctiveness, the distinctive parts of the approach that we offer. Thank you. So do we have cause for despair at the enormity of the challenge or do we have grounds for hope? Um, we see two strands of despair. One, one set of people who say that state building institutional transformation is a long and messy process and takes two or three hundred years. You only have to look at the history of Europe. Or others say, who say, and particularly we observe this in the US, of course, with the calls for pulling out of Iraq, that transformation can't be done at all and it's best left alone. We argue that instead that there are grounds for hope. Um, the first reason, there's enormous amounts of wisdom and capital in the world today, especially as compared with the world of 1945 um, that the wise men faced when they created um, the international organizations that we have today. Um, just some figures on the amount of capital in the world today. The top five NGOs today have an annual budget of $5 billion a year. The top 50 foundations in the U.S. had assets of $151 billion in 2005. That was before Warren Buffett's donation to the Gates Foundation. The top five companies' profits were $90 billion in 2006. And bonuses on Wall Street in 2005 alone were $21.5 billion, just some idea. And then trillions of dollars flowing through the, the capital system, a very, very different world from that of 1945 when not only nations and polities were bounded by national boundaries, but the economies and civil societies were bounded by national boundaries as well. But it's not just, just money, just financial capital that now exists. It's wisdom. And where do we look to find these grounds for hope? Where are the sources of learning? And we think that when we look for um, guidance and wisdom on the how-to of approaching fragile states, failing states, that we're looking in the wrong places. Um, when we were in Afghanistan, we were guided to places um, like Tajikistan or Sierra Leone or Somalia. In 2005, we thought, well, where else can we looked? look? And we looked to other places that had managed to rupture with the past and create a very different history for themselves. Starting with Europe after, after World War II, um, William Clayton observed um, after World War II, that millions of people in the cities in Europe are slowly starving. And I think it's easy to forget the devastation on the continent of Europe. Um, and it was the wisdom with which the plan, the Marshall Plan was put together, and the plan for the reconstruction of Europe that laid the foundations for the unbelievable prosperity that Europe enjoys today. And what was the approach there? In Herbert Simon's book, The Sciences of the Artificial, which is actually a book about artificial intelligence, but it's about system design, he outlines that the Marshall Plan designers considered six different options. Three of them, they rejected outright. They say, if we follow this path, these three, we'll never be able to help. We'll probably be more of a hindrance. Um, those three approaches look very like the aid system today. Um, lots of small projects micromanaged by bureaucrats from Washington. They said, if we follow that route, um, we'll never be able to, to help success. General Marshall said it would never 
It would neither be fitting nor efficacious for this government to draw up unilaterally a programme. This is the business of the Europeans. The initiative, I think, must come from Europe. And the role of this country, meaning the US, must be to support as far as practical. And then a lot of flexibility on the how-to. Um, Dean Aitchison said, what remains interesting is not what we agreed, but how, through all the complexity and confusion, we found a path to agreement. The task was to fix on the broad lines along which we wanted to move. We did not begin with papers, which so often divert readers to trivia, but with dialogue. Singapore. In the 60s, 50s and 60s, and it's easy to forget, Singapore faced poverty, conflict, communist insurgency. Dennis Warner, um, a reporter from Australasia, said Singapore isn't viable at all. And Lee Kuan Yew said in his his autobiography, we faced tremendous odds with an improbable chance of survival. What did the leaders do in Singapore? They decided from the beginning that their task was not to attract aid money, but was graduation from the aid system as quickly as possible that assistance should provide Singapore with jobs through industry. Um, Again, Lee Kuan Yew said, the world does not owe us a living. We cannot live by the begging bowl. And he set about to find a way that Singapore would not be dependent on the economies of the rest of the world, but would leapfrog. And what did he do? He thought about Singapore's position, and he spotted an opportunity. He realized that in between the time the market shut in San Francisco and opened in Zurich, there was a time gap, and he decided that Singapore should, should fill it. And he set out, and he knew that to do that, he mapped backwards, he realized that what it would need was an accountable public finance system, a reputation for absolute integrity that would attract um, the financial markets to do business there, and set about with a team of reformers to create it with relentless focus on implementation. He observed that um, first-generation leaders often have a lot of charisma, but very rarely focus on implementation, and therein lies their downfall. He focused on eliminating graft, creating this public finances with integrity, and then housing and jobs. Where else do we look to? Um, We looked at the cases of Ireland and Spain. Ireland since the 80s, and Spain Um, in the transition since Franco. Um, Both countries managed to position themselves against globalization. They did use aid money. They used the structural funds from Europe. But they used it very, very carefully. Um, In the case of Ireland, Ireland's managed to transform itself from an income of a fraction of the European average um, to 140% of the European average. In the latest uh, national plan, there's $50 billion, $59 billion for human capital, $21 billion for housing, $20 billion for, for investment in enterprise. Um, an incredible transformation. Um, a transformation of similar dimensions in Spain. Um, when we had discussions with the leaders in Spain who were responsible for the transition, they said something very interesting. They said, you know, we knew that aid money was available in Brussels. But we were damned if we were going to allow those Brussels bureaucrats to come and manage it for us. We knew they'd waste it. So we knew we had to build the capabilities within Spain, within the government. We knew we had to build capabilities for procurement, for public finance, for raising taxation, um, 
for designing programs, for managing them. Not that the state would implement, they then contracted out and nurtured the creation of a domestic construction industry. Where else do we look? We look to the states of the American South. Um, in the 1960s, Mississippi um, had an income for black families of an average of $3,000 a year. George Wallace pledged to continue segregation forever in Alabama. Today, the South contains 18 of the 30 US top performing cities. Virginia is the internet capital of the world. Um, Mike Easley is proud, he's the governor in North Carolina, that North Carolina has the best business climate and credit rating in the US. Um, looking at the governor's speeches, over time one observes a pattern. The leadership focuses on the future. They take a 20-year perspective. Um, it's probably Governor Purdue of Georgia who put it best. He said, we don't inherit the earth from our ancestors, we borrow it from our children, himself borrowing a Native American saying. What are the core elements of these different approaches? Um, one of them is certainly leadership. In each of them, there was a leadership team, a group of individuals who came together, some of them with leadership qualities, some of them with management qualities. They focused on a long-term vision of 15, 20 years. They had a degree of flexibility on how to get to the end, incredible imagination, and then a relentless focus on implementation, and particular focus on building a public finance system. Um, we've observed that often diplomats find public finance and, and accountancy very, very boring. They think it's a backroom function. We're arguing that it really should be at the center of, of the project of state building. Two more dimensions. One, an investment in higher education. Um, not in rote learning, but in really problem-solving skills, practical skills, immense amount of investment in vocational training. And then lastly, a focus on building a domestic construction industry, not automatically contracting out to foreign firms, realizing that the jobs had to be created locally, and not only um, construction jobs, management jobs, um, allowing people to become stakeholders in the system through owning first the construction industry um, and, then, and, then, and then spreading out. Contrasting this with the aid system, leadership, the donors rush in and write their own strategies. They don't allow strategies to emerge. The focus on public finance, no, as we've heard, the aid system tends to bring in its own set of procedures and rules that fragment the national system. Investment in higher education, no. Um, in, in Afghanistan in 2002, the Afghan government was told by the UN and the World Bank that it should invest no money in secondary or tertiary education. Why? Because of the Millennium Development Goals. They argued that until all children were educated to the age of 11, there should be no investment in secondary or tertiary education. So where were the country's future engineers, doctors, teachers, managers going to come from? Um, Millennium Development Goals are very useful in other respects, but they need a, a really careful look again. And then lamenting the lack of capabilities, the aid system then instead of investing in higher education, spends hundreds of millions, billions of dollars annually on technical assistance to import capabilities. And then lastly, domestic construction industry, what tends to happen, particularly at this foundational period when there's an open moment, a huge investment um, in paying NGOs, UN agencies and contractors to do the jobs that could be done, should be done, to help lay the basis for a growing economy. Um, from all this, from these, these lessons of success, um, what, what lessons do we draw? And in the book, we set out 
um, a core approach that we think could guide current efforts um, for development, for, for institutional transformation, for state building. And, and what are some of these? The first is something we call a double compact, a compact between the government of a country and the international community on the one hand, and on the other between a government and its citizens. Um, often the focus is on the former, the, the set of conditionalities, the agreement between the international community and the government. And then there's a separate discussion between a government and its people, maybe through a manifesto. And often these two sets of discussions or these multiple discussions are not aligned to each other. We're arguing that they, they should be brought within the same sphere um, with multiple accountabilities in, in directions. This would help reframe politics um, and be citizen-oriented. Um, a second approach is something we call national accountability systems, really working out what, what is a public finance system? How do the different building blocks fit together? How does a budget, one of the core governance folk, uh, processes, fit together with procurement, with treasury, with accounting, with auditing? And what are the frameworks for transparency and for measurement of, of the functions of a state? Uh, we're arguing that this should be something we call a sovereignty index or a state effectiveness index that measures the capability of the state to perform the functions for their citizens. And lastly, an instrument we call national programs that function as a, a set of rules, a framework that allows uh, platforms for collaboration, that allows the government through its budget to determine the rule sets in discussion with its citizens, and then the private sector, NGOs, <coughs> the government, the international community, and most importantly, the citizens to assume various um, roles within this process. These instruments are intended to, to catalyze good governance and catalyze trade and investment and cannot be micromanaged in capitals far away through, through the aid system. Um, in Afghanistan, this approach was applied in, in, in 2002. The government of Afghanistan announced what it called its six national priority sub-programs, uh, the first of which was a ring road, a national health system, a national telecommunications system. So instead of um, the UN paying Ericsson to provide 100 mobile phones, which is what the aid system recommended, a transparent tender process under which there's now more than $1 billion of investment in 4 million phones across the country. Another program is called the National Solidarity Program. Instead of thousands of separate projects not planned according to any discernible rhyme or reason, money is pooled into a central trust fund and block grants allocated. $20,000 to $60,000, depending on the number of, of households by a formula allocated to every village in the country. Um, that was the goal. The program's now rolled out to 32,000 villages out of the 40,000 villages in the country. How do villages access the money? Three simple rules. There must be an election for the village council. A quorum of the village meets to decide on the projects. And then a council put up in a pu public place. And the system pretty much run, runs itself. Um, two, two impacts of this type of approach. One, cost effectiveness. A school, for example, built through this program will cost about a fifth of the amount that the aid system would charge to build such a project by the time it's been through the contractual layers. But perhaps even more significantly, it reinforces good governance. It reinforces the trust between citizens and the state. And when I've had the honor and privilege of going to, to talk to citizens who are part of the program, they say, you know, it's not the money. The money's nice. Please don't take it away. But it's the fact that we feel like citizens because we make the decisions. 
And in fact, it's up to the village. They have the decision rights over the money. And they can choose whether they hire NGOs or do the work themselves or hire, hire the private sector. So what the national programs do is really provide a framework for allocation of decision rights, which functions of the state should be performed at which level, by whom, with what accountabilities. Um, and this is not about creating centralized states. It's about creating citizen-oriented states and find, that find providing a framework for the right balance between <coughs> the state, the market, and civil society. In conclusion, um, we hope that this book sketches out the beginnings of a way for a different approach. And the question remains, can we collectively rise to the challenge of imagining a different approach and then working towards finding the instruments for a different response? Um, we believe we don't have a choice. Um, we don't have a choice to create Fortress Europe and Fortress America. We can't close the door on what is now already an interdependent world. Um, this book is intended as a contribution to a public debate. Um, we've established an institute that's beginning really to focus on the how-to. We can't do this. Um, this is set up as a small contribution um, to the field and hope that some might find it useful. Um, and we're extremely encouraged that the political leadership seems to be res responding to the challenge of state building. Gordon Brown, Miliband and Douglas Alexander recently having announced initiatives really to rethink the approach both to fragile states and to reform of the international system. Um, and we hope they continue to focus on the how-to. Thank you very much. Two very stimulating talks that get at the heart of your recommendations, but only give us a flavor, so you have to really pick up the book and read it. Um, we have some time now, um, about half an hour, for Q&A. And I'll start to take questions, but I want to pose the first question, and then I'm going to start to <laughs> I, I always abuse my position as chairman. Um, no, I've, I've heard you speak before, and I raised a, a question before, and, and then tonight you didn't answer it again, so I'm going to put it again. And, that, uh, and, and, and because of that, I'm also going to, it's going to be a double-barreled question linked. Today when we listen to the aid community, we look at their programs, uh, when we look at the condition of so-called um, uh, uh, failed states, they're very often poor, poor states, poor economies, where the majority of the population depend on subsistence agriculture. The Millennium Development Goals don't tell us much about production and economic production, about wealth creation, not just poverty reduction. Um, and if we look at the history of aid, we see that aid to agriculture has fallen from about 15% uh, 25 years ago to, to about 2% today. Um, and there seems to be no shifting in the thinking of the development, international development community about this. Um, so I'm wondering um, whether or not you see this as an important challenge uh, that needs to be met um, uh, to shift the discourse from merely poverty reduction to, to wealth creation. Uh, linked to that, uh, if we were to look at the latest EU uh, policy paper on Africa, we see a great criticism of China, oh, uh, an extraordinary criticism of China. Um, 
quite a belligerent kind of attitude, the threat that China poses to Africa with its, as a new colonial power. But China is representing the first major influx of foreign investment into, into Africa. Of course, they're not implementing the World Bank's uh, conditionalities, and, and perhaps they're not implementing your own um, um, uh, formula for fixing failed states. Uh, but I'd like to get your views on, 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 on that phenomenon as well. Uh, but shall I collect some yes. others? Uh, please. Yeah. Okay, you were the first, I think, to raise your hand. And I'll, I'll have to ask you to keep raising your hands each time. Yeah. I can. Uh, thank you very much. I'm, I'm really glad I came along. I, when I saw the actual title of the uh, talk, I wasn't sure if I would. <laughs> um, so my first question is about... Uh, your, your terminology of failed states um, as opposed to fragile states, as opposed to conflict-affected states, etc. Failed states sounds very final. Is that a signal to, to try and to fracture from the past, uh, number one? And secondly, again, um, more, more a terminology question. Uh, a lot of the uh, state-building literature, when you actually read it, uh, is more about peace-building and pacification and stabilization, as opposed to state building and uh, whether or not you think there's much understanding or much willingness to build states as opposed to um, bring peace. Uh, but my, my main question, those are two technological <laughs> questions. <laughs> yeah, that's three. <laughs> Sorry. That's worse than me. Um, how do you, I, I went to a talk by Naomi Klein recently about a week ago on uh, her book The Shock Doctrine and Disaster Capitalism. So linked to the, to the willingness to, to build states and peace, um, do you think there is much willingness? There may be the technical know-how and we know how to, etc., but is there willingness to actually implement um, and actually build some of these states rather than profiting from the, from the situation? Gentlemen, right down here. Yeah. Uh, just take the microphone. Uh, uh, talking about the failed state, what can you do about powers which make the state fail, like the American interfering in Somalia? Islamic court was really a collective community rectifying the situation and deliberately aiding and abating Ethiopia to attack uh, the uh, Somalia. And similarly, a surrogate uh, state, Israel, are taking Lebanon. Now, when you're talking about this, the international community, aided and abated by Britain and Europe, now in case of Hamas, for instance, failed states are generated by international community or prosperous community. Thank you. Should I take a couple more, and then we'll have a second round? Yes. Yeah, you Hi. Um, my question is basically, um, you've talked about the issue of recommending um, recommendation of new leadership. With specific to Africa, majority of the states suffer from a night watchman. They, most of them have legitimacy outside and not inside. So I don't see the issue of leadership like a leader will emerge that will somehow transform a state and a good leader in comparison to this Asian I mean, the Asian countries, that they had good leaders, but in Africa we are lacking in those. And 
I think it's quite hopeful to imagine that such thing will occur there because I think with that problem to be specific. And um, the second problem I have is um, the issue of the power problem. I think he's raised it again. Majority of the states in comparison to the international organizations or um, the countries in the West, they, they don't have a great amount of say. And um, for a state to even create jobs or invest in their economies, they can't do that. Majority of them have already opened their economies. So how can an African state, and more importantly, I'm building up to the question is, we seem to be focusing, and so far what I've gathered anyway, we seem to be focusing as failed states from a national point of view, national lenses. Can it be that a lot of the failed states is globally caused? I mean, international communities have created the situation for failure states and are maintaining those failure states for specific reasons. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, My question also concerns the connection between state building and peace because in the beginning you said you need a moment of rapture. The continuation of how things have been done before would be wrong. Now, these don't, or revolutionary situations don't happen very often in history. The everyday problem of, of state building or of peace building looks quite different. You said we don't have enough force to impose order everywhere. On the other hand, you said <coughs> um, force has to be bound by rules, otherwise it's just uh, violence. So what do you do when you have competing powers in a country? What do you do when you have the U.S. and the U.N. militarily intervening on t and different actors in a country uh, fighting for that power? How are you going to fix that? Thank you. Do you want to answer that round sure. and then we'll take sure. some more? Okay. I'll start with, with two of them. Um, starting with um, James's excellent question. Absolutely, um, the focus on poverty reduction rather than wealth creation, um, not that the focus on poverty reduction isn't incredibly important, obscures, we think, a lens where you start not by looking for the negative in a country and assuming that it's about Band-Aids um, and subsistence provision, but how do you turn that around and look for the wealth and potential in a country? When we do our um, analyses, one of the first things we do is do an asset mapping of the country. Look at, and, and while many of the donor reports are reading, when we first went to southern Sudan, the donor reports read, this is a green slate, it's a tabula rasa, there is nothing there. Um, we put that aside and said, no, let's look at what is there. What's the incredible human capital? that still resides in the people of the country, in the diaspora, but also the people who remained with the country. Even in the SPLM, the, the tendency was to see them as, as purely um, revolutionary leaders, not to appreciate the immense wisdom. And John Garang had, had a PhD in agriculture, for example, and had really developed the vision for the country himself. Um, the assets, again, sticking to Sudan, um, the only country that can put water back into the Nile, um, their potential for agriculture, Many countries, um, many of these countries that have the outward symptoms of poverty are not poor countries. They could be producing billions and billions of dollars of wealth. Take Afghanistan as well. The images of a very poor country, 
Um, it has incredible wealth in, in the agriculture system it used to have, could have again. Marble, copper, which is at an all-time high price globally. Um, lapis lazuli, emeralds, and, and, um, and so on, and in the people of the country. So I think absolutely what we, we argue for is how do we turn the lens um, to appreciate the values of poverty reduction, but, but look instead for the assets, how they can be built upon, and how wealth creation strategy could be put into place. Um, on the criticisms of, of um, China and India, I think that, that overlooks, perhaps, and, and India, it overlooks um, the huge potential that the new BRIC donors um, and countries like, like South Africa, it's not just the, the Brazil, Russia, India, China, but a number of countries, um, wealth is coming on stream, and they're going to turn into donors. And could we see this as a huge opportunity um, that this um, immense capital that's coming online um, to devise a way that they could act as a stabilizing influence, as a catalyst for much greater um, prosperity across the world. When um, the, the, Bob Zelik's predecessor, Paul Wolfowitz, visited India to see the Prime Minister, um, Mr. Wolfowitz said, so what do you want from the World Bank for the next 10 years? And the answer was, teach us how to be a good donor. Um, so... Yes, how can we also see, see this as an opportunity and devise not necessarily um, only the approaches in this, this book, but specifically approaches that um, the new donors can bring their assets into play in, in a much more different way. Um, the relationship between peace building and, and state building, um, we've written another paper on this that's not um, specifically covered in this book that argues that um, peace building one of the reasons that many peace agreements fall back into war is because they don't um, contain within the kernels of a state-building approach. Um, they look at short-term stabilization, but they don't look at what it takes for institution building. There was a meeting of SRSG, Special Representatives of the Secretary General, who would played a major role in facilitating, designing, facilitating, and managing peace agreements over the last 20 years um, in 2005, and a number of them concluded... Um, came to the realization halfway through the, the meeting that they'd forgotten the economy um, and what had happened. They thought either that the economy can, can wait till later or that if you just get the state out of the way, somehow magically a market economy will flourish. Instead, what had happened in each of the cases, um, a criminal economy had developed and that criminalized economy had then infected back the state and precipitated um, a renewed phase of state collapse. Um, so what we argue very much is that unless peace, peace agreements or the, the phase after peace agreements contain with them a specific approach for state building, they're going to continue to fail. So. Thank you. Uh, first on agriculture, one, the absolute significance of it. And I think the recent food crisis has reminded us that without getting agriculture right, we are not going to be able to sustain even the change from a dollar a day to two dollars a day. A woman, poor woman, who proved to be great assets in terms of their word of their bond for microcredit payment for the first time are failing to, to make their payments. Uh, second is that the field has, fun, has changed in fantastic ways and we are not actually putting our knowledge. Take the investment in the land-grant colleges in the United States. I mean, the key to this is that both, both Europe and the United States don't practice what they did themselves in terms of developing countries. 
billions of dollars went into agricultural research and creation of public institutions for, for research in agriculture. People forget Cornell, Michigan, Wisconsin, Davis, or all land-grant colleges. They were created through acts of public policy and are funded and supported by public policy. And unless we create that network of learning in key developing countries, I mean, isn't it amazing that you have Afghanistan as the major source of drug production and not one iota of assistance to an, a series of agricultural schools in Afghanistan? One billion dollars to a security firm for wiping out, but not a hundred million dollars in agricultural investment in learning? We have to square the circle. Three is the power of the information uh, management system. You know, I mean, we pioneered the approach in the world to predict locust infestations in the Sahel. We know six months in advance now. We have the information management systems. Why can't we harness what the private sector developed as early as mid-70s to predict grain production? They did it with the Soviet Union, and they made Cargill and other seven sisters on the grain, made huge fortunes. Today, the democratization of information should lend this possible. So there is a lot. Lastly, is the question of water. Water is an endangered public asset globally. Each time we consume, that's embodied water. And we need to get water right. Uh, so all of this, I think, results in a very important thing. But the other part of this is also infrastructure. 40 to 60 percent of the food that is produced in developing countries perishes between the farm and the market. The systems, you know, I give you one example. Afghanistan produces great grapes. You know what happens? They have a life of six weeks. So during that time, they are bought by Pakistani merchants. They are put in uh, cold storage. And during winter, they sell it back to us at five times the price. Yeah, because we don't have a functioning power structure. So getting modern agriculture right requires, again, a knowledge and understanding. And then in terms of the adverse impacts of agriculture, our environment also need to, to be confronted. This is enormously on, on China and India, you, know, you get the European Union paper, but simultaneously there has been a paper published by Booz Hamilton. It's called on... Uh, network governance or complex. Uh, and there, there's a paper from a lady from Hewitt-Packard who started this initiative in Africa called Engineering for Africa because she's devoted her life to this. Two things emerge from there. One, Hewitt-Packard sells more to Africa than it does to, to Europe. So our image of Africa is to really change from one of having no asset to one that is fundamentally changing. In terms, of, in terms of emerging markets, Africa is changing. Second, she documents that the only two countries that have really changed the capacity dynamics fundamentally in terms of providing engineering education are actually China and India. Because the aid system, as I argued, spends two billion a year on its 100,000, and the French really need to think twice before they accuse the Chinese and the Indians of their record in Africa. I mean, how many thousands of French have you got? How much investment in infrastructure has taken place there? And so should other key members of the European state. 
you know, one should remember what Jesus said. Who can throw the first stone? And, and we really need to have a level playing field in terms of this. China and India give rise to the same language that the industrialization of Germany produced in this country. It is the reaction of established powers to newcomers. But we need to get China and India right. And Brazil and, and the rest of it. Because 20 years from now, China is going to be the second largest economy. Brazil would be the, uh, India would be the fourth. And Brazil probably the fifth. The trend, and it requires a very complex understanding and negotiations that all of them can play in a level playing field. But the beginning of reform of the aid system has to become from Europe and the United States so that others can, can, can follow uh, on that. Uh, the other question, uh, Claire, uh, Anna. On, on peace building, the key is that the international community has arrived at a stylized understanding humanitarian assistance, then emergency, then reconstruction, and finally economic development. Uh, so the word private sector and private investment, for instance, appeared nowhere in the, in the papers of the donors vis-a-vis -vis Afghanistan. Had we listened to them, we would have had 100 mobile licenses in small groups that aren't competing. One has to get the economy right at the very beginning. In the economy, there is an understanding, you know, a false reading of Adam Smith, but more uh, the fable of the bee, as the economy is a spontaneous order. The creation, economy is an institution that requires the visible hand. And unless we create that type of investment in the economy, we're not going to get it right. Uh, so a lot of the peace-building literature is actually bureaucratic justification of turf because it is specific bureaucratic interest in the UN and in various countries and organizations that are involved in this. We need to come to terms with bureaucratic interests. This is not big power play. This is, I've worked inside these systems because from outside they lend themselves to a very different lens. Three on, on power. Yes, the West has a, has a record of overthrowing democratic governments. That's why we have the Iranian crisis in 1953 the U.S. overthrew a democratic elected government, and, and this is the consequence of this. But the question is, do we subject ourselves to a continuation of a, of a history of hatred and mutual accusations, or are we ready to break out? Second part, you know, we, we spoke of a double failure. It was not a national lens alone. The West did not make Abacha steal billions of dollars from Nigeria. It's Abacha that did. The West has opened its banking system in Switzerland to, to allow for stashing of the wealth. But the last government of Nigeria actually successfully negotiates some of these returns. We need to look both inside and outside. It's a very easy way out to blame outsiders. No society is fundamentally changed unless an internal debate has begun. What I find incredibly refreshing in Africa now is that for the first time, Africans are looking internally. A lot of society suffered from colonialism. Some have managed to put it behind them. The history that this continuation of view of power as to all agency resides in some other places, 
I think it's fundamentally problematic. Afghanistan is one illustration of that. Anyone who's come in anger and thought that they could conquer us because we were poor and starving is found otherwise. Uh, the British tried. They failed. The Soviets tried in the most brutal ways. They failed. But when ISAF forces came to Kabul in December of 2001, the children made the judgment that they had not come in anger. They started playing with them while running away from our own militia. So one has to look at, at the mechanisms. Today the world is interdependent in both ways. And we need to be able to get this right. And this is which goes back to your uh, wonderful question. Nine-tenth of legitimacy now comes from performance of these other functions to make use of force obsolete. What Europe did to its own citizens until Cambodia and Rwanda was unthinkable in any developing country. Six million people were put through gas chambers in the heart of Europe. And yet, heart of Europe is now democratic. Because one set of values and institutions was changed to another. Use, can one possibly think for a day that the German army could be used against the German people? So change transformation is really possible, yet it was the same army that was arresting and the same police force and liquidating people. Uh, tragedy is very real, but it's also ground for rethinking. And in these regards, when you, the nature of war fundamentally has changed. I recommend very much General Smith's book called The Utility of Force. In the literature that is now coming on the fourth generation of warfares, we are not in the period of what the third generation, namely Napoleonic War. These are not wars that are fought among armies or states. They are fought among people. And the core insight about solving this again comes from a British called Thompson, who wrote on, Mal on Malay, then now Malaysia, then Malay. And his core thing was people are at the essence of winning a war of this type. You have to turn your back to the insurgency and your face to the people because they will make the decision. And that lies the challenge, to devise mechanisms to ensure that order can be generated through a process that results in the isolation of those threats that require the use of force and hence the legitimacy of its use because people will decide to isolate those that undermine their interests. And we need to be able to create those kind Difficult? Absolutely. Impossible? No, because if we don't get it right, we're not going to be secure. I can take some very brief, now you can't make long statements, you can put very brief questions. Is there somebody upstairs? Yes, so they didn't, nobody upstairs got a chance. So. <laughs> there you go, right down in front. Yes, you have to create a level playing field. <laughs> yes. Oh, sorry, no, he's the one I saw first, I'm sorry. Thank you. We'll Does your you book next. in general, and the Institute in particular, offer any insights in dealing with those agents who have stakes in gridlocking own states into failure? So there is a milieu of merrymakers from militaries 
to mercenaries who would not like institution building. Okay, thank you. Yeah, and you can pass it there. It's a very quick one. Do you see, who do you see, let me be optimistic, as the sources of leadership emerging in the international community to do this? And can you give names? Very good. And how about, how about right here in the end, uh, also up on top? And then I come back Thank down. you. Uh, this question is for um, Dr. Ashraf Ghani. You're part of an administration which um, advocated and argued for introduction of free market economics during the constitutional age era. Um, people who argued against it would thought that Afghanistan is not ready for it, and at, at worst it would have a devastating impact. Do you think it was a wrong decision to make? Thank you. Very good. Okay, right, right in the back. Try now geographically in the room. Um, just been reading Misha Glennie's book on uh, globalized crime and links between international crime and uh, political elements in failed states. How far do you think his view um, is pessimistic or otherwise? Thank you. And uh, this one right here on the... Then I think I'm going... I um, a characteristic of failed states is often that a large number of their people are living outside their territory. Um, do you see these diasporas as more of a threat or an asset, and how significant are they? Okay. I, uh, let's take one more question down here in front. Uh, my question is uh, regarding the <coughs> channeling of aid. Um, from the way you described it, it sounds to me as if um, it's, it's been deliberately designed this way as part of the economy of developed countries to recycle what they pretend to donate for development. Is that, is, is my assumption right? Okay, I think we have to give very summary answers because Absolutely. we're coming close to the end of our time. Yeah, on the last one, it differs. Scandinavia's Scandinavian aid, Dutch aid, is not restricted. Uh, largely. By and large. 90% of it and 95% is, is no strings attached. British aid, again, follows very closely on this model. DFID is actually a change phenomenal. On the other side, USAID is extremely restricted and it's actually totally designed. So shipping interests need to be supported and a very large <coughs> portion Transporting goods on American ships costs four times that international shipping. But support of the shipping industry is at the heart of food policy. Uh, and some fall in between. So that's uh, the, the heart of it. Uh, second, on the market. The first part to understand is that the market is an, is an institution that is regulated by the state. What we've got in Afghanistan is not a functioning market. It's a criminalized economy. There's a major difference between a market that functions and is regulated and then yields the wealth and one that is run for the interest of a very narrow section. i just give you a couple of examples. Afghanistan imports the lowest quality of petroleum in the world. It's 40 to 60 octane. Four to six individuals benefit from this medicine, etc. That is not a market economy, and it's not a, a regulated economy. 
it is criminalization. So it's abuse of public power for private gains, and it's a failure to create the necessary uh, conditions. A market economy varies as much from Germany's social economy to U.S.'s open model. Each country needs to arrive as to how it's going to balance the market. Uh, so the word itself does not mean an institutionalization. Uh, and what would have been the alternative would have also been uh, interesting. That, 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 that's uh, uh, different. Uh, criminal networks. Uh, Moise's name is, is then a brilliant book called Illicit. We need to understand criminalization is made possible by globalization. This type of criminalization was not possible without globalization. The Afghan drug industry is a fully integrated criminal economy. It's, it's the most significant mechanism of integration. Its problem is that it's totally illegal. And its implication is the criminalization of the rest of the economy. So we need to take this extremely seriously because, again, the price of drugs in this country and the rest of Europe has been steadily dropping for 20 years. And this society is part of the problems of our society. Don't throw it at us alone. You, Europe, for instance, has failed to police its borders. You're spending billions of dollars on your policing. What's the largest hold that they've had on drugs? So there's accommodation, and the bulk of the profits of the drug industry are concentrated here. Yes, the economy, but you know, the bulk of the economy is legal, but an illegal underbelly consists. The danger is to those countries in the immediate wake of a peace agreement or the beginning of, of a process that if you don't get the economy right, criminalization then puts a formidable obstacle, and it has to be really appreciated. Claire, do you want to take that? Um, absolutely. On, on the design of aid, um, completely agree. And I think a lot of it is there's, there's some deliberate attempts. There's some um, part of it is that there, there have been original acts and then they've been amended and added to and, and accumulated. Nobody stopped to think again about uh, system design. The Foreign Assistance Act in the US being one example of this formed in the early 60s. It's now more than 2,000 pages of amendments um, and it has become a jungle through which it's very impossible to see, see the wood for the trees. Um, many politicians don't understand um, the, set, the sets of rules. And because of the lack of accountability, um, six of the UN agencies currently refuse to disclose their audit reports even to their own governing boards. Um, even if, so if govern, governing boards don't have, have oversight or understanding of the system, how can citizens, how can, can politicians in this respect the Publish What You Pay initiative that's being proposed for the upcoming ACRA conference is extremely welcome um, to bring first transparency and understanding of the system before um, reform can move forward. In terms of source of leadership, one of the arguments that we make in this book is that this has to be a citizenship agenda. And in the course of discussing the book over the last weeks in America, what we found um, a, a real delight is that the best questions sometimes come um, from, from citizens um, in the bookshops, in, in the coffee houses across the country. Um, so we hope that, and, and as John Dewey argued, it's, it's through citizen engagement and public debate that real change happens. 
so I can't name names. I just hope it becomes a, a citizenship agenda. Um, in terms of interest and gridlocking, um, absolutely one of the things that we do is really try and analyze interest groups as, as stakeholders in the system. And the work that the, it's not covered in so much detail in the book itself, um, but one of the things that the Institute has developed as a methodology is when um, assessing the country context is to convene groups. We call it um, critical stakeholder inquiry, to convene <coughs> stakeholder groups to try and read um, the interest groups um, and the patterns that exist in, in, in a context before um, and shedding light on those to help leaders design a strategy and build coalitions that can carve a different path. Um, an, an earlier question just in, in conclusion, is there willingness to implement this or a similar approach? We're not the only ones arguing for um, elements of, of this approach. I think there are extremely encouraging signs and um, the movement to place the state-building agenda at the top of the international agenda as compared with 2001 when President Bush said, I'm not doing nation-building in Afghanistan, and many um, other leaders around the world really tried to block a, a state-building agenda. In 2002, it was not possible to raise even $40 million um, by the government of Afghanistan for a good governance program at provincial and district level. Um, why? The donors said this type of program... Um, it isn't poverty-reducing. Governance isn't poverty-reducing. Um, I think we live in a, in a very different world. There's certainly an enormous amount of attention to this agenda at leadership level, um, the willingness to implement. I think the resistance comes in, in the, the mid-levels of the bureaucracy, and the question is, is can that resist, can different types of coalitions be built? One just sign of this is, um, for example, USAID um, said at, at some point that they could never, Congress would never let them support what I just described as the national program approach in Afghanistan. It looks highly likely that Congress is in fact now moving to appropriate perhaps more than $100 million just for one of these programs. Um, why? Because of citizen discussion. Engaged citizens who decided to engage with their senators and congressmen to explain to them the problems um, results, can result in really rapid transformation. I'll stop there. Thank you. I, I think we can, we can safely say that um, uh, this audience here represents a kind of multi-cosmopolitan citizenship and has offered a vibrant uh, set of questions and I apologize for those who couldn't uh, pose their question. I direct you to the Crisis States Research Center's website where if we don't have it already, we will soon have a link up to the Institute for State Effectiveness. And also, of course, I address you to the book because uh, many of your questions that weren't asked, I'm sure, are answered inside. So let's thank our two speakers, um, uh, and don't be strangers to the other <laughs>